the name of the series that we have been undertaking as the life, earthly life and ministry of Jesus the Messiah. And we've tried to go through an imperfect sequence of events. However, when it comes to this particular time, it's difficult to get the sequence actually right because things are happening simultaneously. And so Jesus may be speaking while other people are doing things. And so the, what I've done is, is try to keep the sequencing, but kind of take apart all the aspects of it. Now, typically, when it comes to crucifixion, it takes days for the condemned to die. When it comes to these three who are being crucified, they don't have days, they have only hours because Passover is coming when the sun goes down and they don't want people hanging on the cross to defile Passover. So these things are taking place. And so when we last took a look, we saw that Jesus had been nailed to the cross, that an inscription had been placed over his head and that's where we left it. Now, John 19, verse 23, kind of picks it up and says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And so we, we see that the writers of the gospel here, John, wants to make sure that we understand not only what's taking place. Like I said, it's interesting that as they go through the crucifixion, they don't try to manipulate us in our feelings. They don't try to manipulate us in this sense, but they want us to come to faith. So one of the ways we know that Jesus is the Messiah is that it had been predicted, and as I read in Psalm 22, that there would be lots cast for his garments and his garments would be divided. And so the scriptures are trying to tell us that we can tell who the Messiah is based on his death. Now, based on his life, we know who the Messiah is, because he was the one who was foretold, who would preach the good news to the poor, that he would heal, that he would heal the blind and the deaf and the lame and those who were sick. He would also raise people from the dead. But that didn't seem to bring anybody to faith because even when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when it was reported back that he'd done so, instead of coming to faith, they said, we need to get rid of Jesus and Lazarus. So there was no faith being generated. But, but the writers here are trying to tell us, pointing us that Jesus is the Messiah because it was thought that the Messiah would never die. And so as it goes on in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, it says this, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, I want you to take a look at a couple of things here. 
Jesus is asking God to forgive them. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because he's the one that they're doing the things to. Because only the Father can forgive sin, and only sin is done against the Father. Well, what do you mean? I'll give you an example. David had committed several sins. He lusted after his heart for a woman who he saw taking a bath on the rooftop. Instead of being with the kings and at war, he was doing other things. He then brought her to him and committed adultery. She became pregnant, so he tried to hide it. So he lied. He then brought her husband back to see if they could cover it up. But her husband, Uriah, was more honorable than David and we refused to go into the house, but would sleep outside. David even tried to get him drunk so that he would lower his inhibitions, but he was still more honorable. So then David had him killed. So David violated a number of the Ten Commandments, the biggies. And when David confessed, and we see that in, in Psalm 51, that David says, against you and only you have I sinned. Now he had wronged Uriah, but he had only sinned against God. And so Jesus is saying, they are sinning, but Father, forgive them. So number one, I want you to understand that they're sinning. Well, but it's God's plan. Yes, it's God's plan. But they still were crucifying the Son of the living God, which was wrong. Yes, it was part of God's plan. But as Jesus said about Judas, it was necessary, but woe to the man who does so. Now, to give you kind of my thinking on this theology, yes, it's God's plan. But let me ask you a couple of questions. If there's somebody that you truly love, whether it's a child, grandchild, a spouse, a mother, a brother, a sister, somebody that you truly love, would you not trade places with that person? Would you not give your life for that person so that they might live and you say, okay, I'll, I'll die. And say, In essence, that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking our place. But the truth of the matter is, it's not a worthy bargain. He's dying for me and he's dying for you and we're not worth it. It's the son of the living God that they're crucifying. And yes, I thank God that he loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us. And yes, I am grateful to God that because of that sacrifice, I can have my sins forgiven and that I can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It is not a bargain that he should have made. Because even in my best, I'm not worthy. So you see, it's not about us, but it's about his love for us. Now, Jesus is going to teach us some things, and I find it here. Notice that they haven't stopped sinning. They haven't stopped crucifying. They have continued on with their mocking him. 
But even during this, he says, Father, forgive them. Now, you and I, when somebody wrongs us, we think we're pretty spiritual if they ask for forgiveness. And we do, in fact, forgive. But usually what we do is we wait for them to ask for forgiveness. And even Peter, when talking about forgiveness, says, well, how many times when my brother comes to me and seeks forgiveness, do I forgive him seven times? He's thinking, that's a lot. And Jesus says, no, seven times. And yet, Jesus, without anyone confessing their sin or seeking forgiveness, says, Father, forgive them. Now, a few years ago, there was a very, uh, there was a fad that I had criticized. And it, you had a little bracelet, and it had a little word, letters on it, and it represented for what would Jesus do? Now, those of you who have heard me, known that I have criticized that for one reason, and that's that we should know what our Lord would do before he did it so we wouldn't have to consider because we should be disciples of his, knowing his teaching, knowing his life. But there's a second reason I didn't like that. Because that question presumes that Jesus didn't experience it. Well, I wonder if Jesus had this problem, what would he do? The truth is, Jesus had experienced every single thing that we ever would experience, yet without sin. So it's not what would Jesus do, what did Jesus do? And in this situation, Jesus didn't wait for somebody to ask for forgiveness. He forgave. Maybe we should look at the actions of Jesus. You see, he taught, but he lived what he taught. So many times, we are guilty of do what I say, not what I do. The second thing I want you to notice here is Jesus didn't say, Father, excuse them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, forgive them so that there might be reconciliation, that there might not be anything between God and them for their action that they're taking. Jesus isn't expecting excuse. He's asking for them to be forgiven. Now, my wife and her family are from Texas. And they had a saying that I heard several times. Fortunately, it was never directed at me, at least in my presence. It might have been directed at me when I was away. But they would say things like, bless his little heart. Bless his little heart. And, and so, you know, I thought, and then I heard a comedian a few years later after I heard it a number of times. And this comedian was from Texas. And he says, when you hear, bless his little heart, that's the Texas nice way of saying he's an idiot. So you see, it's a nice way of excusing the person's actions because they're an idiot. What can you expect from an idiot but what idiots do? Jesus isn't saying, bless their little hearts. Jesus isn't asking for excuses. He's saying, Father, forgive them. And again, we need to look at that and say, yes, Jesus, if you forgave, then I should forgive. And I don't need to wait for somebody to ask for forgiveness. But when they do, I certainly will. His first statement shows the heart of who Jesus is. 
Forgive them. Matthew 27, 39 says this, And those passing by were hurling abuses at him, wagging their heads and saying, You are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So they're mocking him. They're, they're saying things and misquoting him. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. That's a lie. If he came down from the cross, they still would not believe him because he did many things according to the scriptures that proved that he was the Messiah and they still refused to believe, even raising the dead. But thank God he did not come down from the cross because if he had, you and I would still be under the same conviction of sin and be condemned forever. Which shows again that Jesus isn't like me. Because there's oftentimes when people say, well, you can't do that. I'll prove you wrong. But Jesus didn't prove them wrong. He allowed himself to be mocked because it was necessary for you and me. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. That's true. But not only did he say it, he was and is it. And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Here's a situation where two men who are condemned to the same fate as Jesus are mocking him. Everybody talks about hell and saying, well, at least when I go there, I'll have a bunch of friends and it'll be like having a beer party. There are no friends in hell. They're all selfish and they're all concerned with their own torment. There's mocking. However, one will change. One of those two thieves will have a change. Verse Luke 30, 23, 39 says this. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuses at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly for we are receiving what we deserve for our deed. But this man has done nothing wrong. Something happened to this man as he hung on the cross and as he saw Jesus and he saw who Jesus was and he saw how Jesus reacted and he went from mocking him to having faith. And to me, this is one of the greatest testimonies of faith in the entire scriptures. Or you see, if there was ever a time that did not appear that God was in control, if it ever appeared a time that Jesus was being defeated, if it ever was a time when it did not appear that Jesus was the Son of God, it is now. 
The religious leaders are mocking him. The crowds are mocking him. Even those condemned to die with him are mocking him. He has been beaten. He has been slapped. He has been scourged. He has had a crown of thorns placed on him. He is a bloody mess. And yet this person doesn't see the circumstances. He sees Jesus. All too often, we keep saying, God, if you'll deliver me from this circumstance, I will believe. This person had faith. God, I don't care what the circumstances are. I believe. And so this man says, and he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So obviously this man believes that God, that Jesus is going to have a kingdom and that Jesus is going to go there. And when Jesus goes there, he wants to be included in that kingdom. A statement of faith, a condemned man as he, hanging, bruised, bloodied, scourged, and crucified. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Oh, what great faith. The religious leaders saw Jesus raise people from the dead, see him heal people, see him cast out demons and refuse to believe. This man sees a bloody mess and has faith. And notice in verse 43, what Jesus says, his second statement. And he said to him, truly, which means you can depend on it. Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Not someday, not afar off, but today. You're still hanging on a cross. I'm still hanging on a cross. But today, you and me are going to be in paradise. Which Jesus' statements tells us a certain thing. There is no soul sleeping. You don't die And whenever Jesus comes back again, you wake up and you are to be, when the scripture says, when you you are absent from the body, that you are present with the Lord. There is no soul sleeping. There is no time out. It is eternal life. Not life, pass out, life. Not life, death, life. It is eternal life. And Jesus says, today. Today. And that same statement applies to every loved one who's claimed the name of Jesus that has gone on before us. It's with Jesus. Now, the difference here and now is that the saints prior to Jesus' death would go to paradise, Abraham's bosom. But after his death, we go to be with the Lord. So today, in John 19, verse 25, it says this, Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. Now it's interesting that the scriptures tells us that the women were there viewing him and his mother. 
was there. Now, despite what our Catholic brothers and sisters say, Mary isn't the mother of God. Mary gave birth to the man Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is God. But he did not originate from her. He was before her. But she was faithful because when the angel Gabriel came and said, the Lord seeks for you to deliver his child. She said, be it done to this maidservant as you deem fit. She surrendered herself for his glory. This one who raised Jesus, who moved from her home in Galilee to Bethlehem while she was at time to give birth and gave birth and stayed in Bethlehem and then moved to Egypt because it was not safe. And then after it was Herod had passed, moved back to Galilee, but to Nazareth so that they might be safe. This one who, when they would go back and forth to Jerusalem on holy days and Jesus wasn't there, panicked because he wasn't with the family and searched for him. And then he responded, I'm at my father's house. This mother who I'm sure felt the great burden and responsibility of raising the son of God. Now, is at his foot of his cross, seeing his life poured out a ransom for many. Now, those of you who are parents, especially your mothers, you can know exactly how she feels. And she's there. And so are the other women. They're there at his most difficult hour. It's funny that we're going to only hear one other disciple being there. And this passage will tell us who that is. But it's obvious the other disciples had been there. For instance, Thomas. Because later Thomas is going to say, no, no, don't tell me about resurrection because I saw him die. I saw him pierce the hands and the feet. And I saw him pierce the, the side. I saw him die. He was dead. He didn't swoon. He, he was dead. And I will not believe until I see the the hands and the feet and the side. So obviously Thomas was there, a firsthand experience of what's going on. And I suspect the other disciples had been as well. But the women were there. Verse 26, it says, And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, again, that being John. John never says John. He says the disciple, you know, which to me is kind of like even, even more... Um, Egotistical. You know, I would have said, and, and Jesus saw Joe, and he said, whatever. But John always says, the disciples who Jesus loved. Well, Jesus loved all his disciples. But I bet there was a special relationship between him and John. And he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now, when I first read this, many, many years ago, my initial thought was that Jesus was saying, he's saying, look at me, mom. But he's not. He's not saying, look at me, mom. He's saying, look at John. Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. 
Jesus is telling his mother, look at John as if he were your son. And John, look at Mary as if she was your mother. Now, I, because I'm human, go, I don't get quite why he's doing this. Because Jesus, and again, despite what our Catholic brothers and sisters say, had brothers and sisters. James and, and Judas would eventually be followers of Jesus and, and write a couple of letters. So you go, well, why didn't he have them do it? Because I think he knew that the demands that were going to be placed on James and Judas would have it difficult to care for their mother. Because James is going to be a leader of the Jerusalem church. And so he provides for his mother in this way. Now some say because it says in verse 27, then he said to the disciple, behold your mother, from that hour the disciple her into his home, which may mean that John may have had some place to live in Jerusalem, and they were to remain in Jerusalem for a period of time, and then after that, the church was going to originate from Jerusalem, so maybe it was because John had the place for Mary to be during these times that it was necessary for James, for John to do that, whereas James and, and others of his half-brothers still lived in Galilee. I'm not sure, but I know this, that Jesus is being crucified. And yet, he is concerned about others. All too often, when we find ourselves unjustly accused of things and going through circumstances that we don't think we deserve, we think about ourselves how unfair it is, how I shouldn't be treated this way, the pain and the anguish. And if I just had somebody to share the pain and the anguish with. Jesus wasn't focused on himself. He goes, my mother who cared for me, who loved me, and who followed me throughout my ministry is now going to be bereft. And I want her taken care of. So when we ask ourselves, not what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? What he did was even in his own problems and heartaches and pain and suffering, he thought of others. And maybe we should do as well that we should break the cycle of woe is me and say, what are you needing? And Jesus took care of his mother at a time when we could think that would be the last thing on his mind. Three of the four statements that Jesus declares on the cross. Each of them tells us more about who he is. And he forgives. 
even while being suffering. That he responds in kind of faith and says, today. And he, while being crucified, still concerned about others. Why did he not come down from the cross? Because he loved you and me more than the pain. And he wanted to obey the Father more than all of that. For you see, Jesus lived the bread of life to do the will of the Father. And it was very clear this was the will of the Father because he prayed three times, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, your will be done and not mine. And Jesus took the full brunt of everything to obey the Father because the Father so loved the world that he gave Jesus. Three statements. Jesus is still teaching us by what he says and what he does. The reason I'm spending so much time on the crucifixion is I want you to, one, understand just exactly what Jesus went through. And I want you to understand just exactly what it means to our faith. Because we all too quickly go from his death to his resurrection. Because it's difficult to think about. Because we are not worthy. All of us collectively combined are not worthy for this sacrifice. And yet he gave it. And so we need to contemplate it. We need to meditate about it. We need to understand it. Because we can learn a whole lot about who Jesus is while he's hanging on the cross. So let us not jump from one event to the other. Because Christ demonstrated his love towards us while we were yet sinners. He died for us. We're going to sing in a moment. At the cross, love ran red. And as I said last week, the reason I picked it and the reason we're going through it several times is because it's one of the few songs that never talks about the resurrection. It only talks about his suffering. And that is what I want us to contemplate. That is what I want us to meditate. That is what I want us to think about because the Son of God, the one who spoke all the things that are come into existence hung there on a cross, accepting the shame and the pain of it. And notice here, again, like I said, the writers don't talk about the agony on the cross. The only time they ever talked about the agony was when he was praying, let not this cup be there, but let it pass. The agony of prayer. But once it was decided that that's what God wanted, then he bore it 
uncomplaining, taking on the full measure of the hatred and the mockery and the beating and the scourging and the slapping because he obeyed his father. He loved you and me. And all God's people said, 